One of the things that I also found from founders or co-founders where they are really clear as to what their product does and does not do. And it brings that authenticity and it's very clear you get a lot more respect for a person if they say no to things because it's easy to be seduced by enterprise companies and CIOs or large companies and say, we're going to give you a multi-million dollar check if you do X, Y, and Z. Welcome to another episode of Zero to Exit. This is Nleeman Ankur, your hosts. So far on this podcast, we have had builders and sellers. But in today's episode, we're going to focus on the buyer. We will probe it in the mind of a CIO who owns a multi-million dollar budget to procure SaaS or a B2B product. We'll deep dive into what goes into product selection, retention, and expansion. To talk more about that, we have Naveen Zutsi, CIO of Palo Alto Networks. Naveen is an industry veteran with decades of experience building and buying technology products. He has a curious mind and loves to experiment with different products and technology. If there's a B2B tool out there, chances are that Naveen has either experimented with it or wrote a hundreds of thousands of dollars a check. He's also an advisor at several startups and large companies, including Zoom, Rubrik, and Cyberstarts. He's also in the CIO board of advisory at Greylock. If you're an entrepreneur focusing on the $2 trillion plus IT market, you don't want to miss this episode. Hi, Naveen. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Ankur. Thank you, Nalima. It's great to talk to you today. To kick things off, I want to spend a little bit of time on your childhood and upbringing. You were born and raised in a small town in the northern part of India before you moved to the big cities and eventually migrated to the U.S. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so I was born in Kashmir. Uh, being a Kashmiri boy, raised in a small place, you are what you consider in a Hindi kuchmanduk, frog in a well, and you think the world is revolves around Srinagar, and so you're fairly isolated, and you don't know much about the world. So two things that I learned uh, while I was there, watched Cosmos by Carl Sagan. That gave me the lifelong passion for astrophysics and astronomy and sci-fi. And then um, I read a lot of books. My cousin used to study in an engineering college and he dropped off a lot of books. So I got a chance to read a lot of books, but still growing up very sheltered in a very small town in lower middle class family. Got it. And, you know, then obviously for college, you moved to the bigger cities and then you came to the States. How was that transition like for you? Yeah, both for engineering. When I moved into Bangalore to do my engineering, suddenly I met a lot more folks from the rest of India who spoke various different languages, different culture, different cuisine, different way of upbringing, different thinking. Really a lot of learning, in my opinion, as a result of that. And that was one part of education of coming out from a monochromatic culture to a lot more cosmopolitan culture. And then I was thrust back into a weird situation. I my first time coming to U.S. was to Arkansas, of all places. And uh, I didn't know anything about Arkansas. I didn't know anything about Walmart. Uh, that was my first company that I joined right after a year after college. And Arkansas is not what I thought of U.S. I thought of U.S., you know, this big cities, shining capitals, big freeways. I think I landed and there are two stop signs in Arkansas at that time. <laughs> it was the small plane 
with 16-seater plane with this airport, which had two hangars. And I was like, man, where have I come? And this is in the middle of winter. I didn't have any warm clothes either. So I had just like this jacket and my parents had given me a pressure cooker to take with me. So I had a pressure cooker <laughs> to cook some food. And that was it. So it was a cultural shock at a very high level. Speaking of culture shock, what was the experience like uh, working at Walmart? And then how did you eventually get into IT? Well, I didn't even know what IT meant. I just knew engineering. I was an engineer, software engineer. Later on, I found out that you are building products for internal customers rather than for external customers. Walmart itself, the experience was amazing because they were growing really fast at that time and they were building everything from scratch because no vendor could support the kind of scale they had at that time. So that was a great experience from a software engineering standpoint. Walmart is is still considered one of the toughest negotiators uh, for all you know their vendors and suppliers. In the early days, like did you get a sneak peek into how that procurement process, be it like goods or software technologies, work? So I one of the first systems I built with the IT team there was import merchandising systems. So as a result of that, I actually flew and went to Indonesia, to Hong Kong, to China and visited with the buyers at that time and saw those buyers negotiating billion-dollar deals on behalf of Walmart and bringing each vendor in for 15 minutes to make decisions on. Very fascinating discovery for me. And those negotiation skills have carried me forward for many years. And is this how you were gradually moving from the engineering side of things to the IT side of things, like negotiating and meeting buyers? Well, in in Walmart, for sure, right? So I was working for internal products there and I was building initially in uh, Java and Power Builder. So I don't know if you are familiar with Power Builder. It used to be a client-server application. And then on the back end, it was Informex because they wanted something that was a database that they could control. And from there, started building and then joined management pretty early on as well. And then came into the Bay Area in 2000. You've mentioned that problem solving is one of your favorite skills. And anyone who's dealt with IT knows that is an area that is filled with problems to be solved. Is that why the pivot to IT happened? Yeah, I always um, liked to solve problems, whether it was math, whether it was physics. Those were my favorite subjects growing up. And I always appreciated the art of taking time, even if it took longer, rather than get frustrated to actually love, love to solve problems. And so I think in computer science, the two things that I really liked a lot was one is you're solving something, you're creating something that you haven't created before. And if you remember previously, we didn't have GitHub and we didn't, you know, like now, probably 80% of the code is copied and 20% is created new. At that time, probably 90% of the code is created new and 10% is copied. And so we were creating a lot of new code on a lot of scalable systems and learning through a lot of mistakes. And that's one big thing. And the second thing is you get to learn a ton and learn new technology, learn the business, talk to them and understand their problems what they are trying to solve and the problems they were trying to solve at at the scale that that Walmart was, was a great experience for a young engineer coming out of college. So I want to transition now a little bit into IT budgeting and the tool selection process. 
when CIOs start the fiscal year, I would imagine you have budgets for productivity tools like office, web conferencing, etc. And there are then discretionary budgets for tools for IT departments that you can procure along the way. What does the budgeting process look like for a medium to large scale enterprise? Yeah, so it's it's actually, you don't budget for tools, you budget for what your strategy evolution is going to be. And the way we do our budgeting is in, we bucket our budget in three main areas. And many companies do that. One is run the business. Uh, you know, so that's keeping the lights on. What is your budget going to be for that? Second is for grow the business, which is really talk, talking and working with your business partners and deciding where they want to take the business next and building that. And then the third is transform the business. This is at CEO level down. You are thinking in terms of what are the main strategic key things you want to develop next year. And that's more of an annual process. So we have an annual process for transforming the business and more quarterly process for growing the business. So as part of those grow and transform and run also, Run, you're looking at more efficiency. You're constantly looking at making automation and driving more efficiency. So tool consolidation and tool rationalization, simplification becomes a priority and tool replacement becomes a priority. In grow and transform, you are actually looking to transform the business, make money for your company. And there you are going to add more incremental tools as well. So you have two different set of priorities depending on what you're thinking. So what does the breakup look like uh, for incremental versus new tools? Is it like 60-40 or is that also driven by the strategy? Yeah, so and different enterprise companies run at a different level. So I would say in if you look at Gartner, you will find 60% of enterprises' budget is in run the business and then the 40 is rest. We are running a more efficient way to where it's 45 to 50% is run the business, rest is on grow and transform. And that gives us more flexibility to build more projects. But also, you have to think about if you have more legacy, your run the business gets higher. And then a lot of your budget is sucked away in just keeping the lights on. Got it. I'd imagine that productivity tools and web conferences probably run the business. But would you consider like CRM tools or marketing tools like you know Adobe Market or whatever as more like the kind of the grow the business and transform category like what kind of tools would fall in each of these yeah. categories yeah so your networking your infrastructure your security is in run the business even though you are growing security as an example you need to it is from run the business because you're reducing risk there whereas a CRM product could be a group project or could be a transform project. Let's say you don't have a CRM product today or you have a you have a nascent one and you want to really expand it and transform it. Or for example, two years ago when we moved to a SaaS business more, building a subscription billing and subscription quoting system was considered a transformational project for us. So so projects can change depending on the size, complexity and how many teams are involved cross-functionally. Got it. I've never looked at IT budgeting through this lenses, so this is super insightful. So if you are an entrepreneur or a product builder, I'd imagine that you know you want to attach yourself to the second or third category, transformation or grow the business. And in order for them to do that, they have to understand your business. Like h- how can somebody who's building a product get insights into sort of, hey, what are the business transformation initiative? Do these 
vendors typically approach you and say, hey, Naveen, can you tell us like what your top priorities are for the year? And then they attach themselves to one of the three causes. Is that how it generally works? Yeah, I think uh, asking is the best way. <laughs> you just, yeah. just ask the question and most people are more than willing to share their top strategies because they want to partner with other people to make things happen. So I think that's the best way. Uh, I would also challenge the notion of the fact that you can't build a business and run the business. You can. Like Rubrik is a great case where they were targeting the backup market. And if you think about backup and restore market, you would consider that solely in the run the business model. But the dirty little secret in backup and restore is restore doesn't work. And people used to pray, hope and pray that restore would work. Right? And so you now have companies like Cohisti and Rubrik come along and they have a different way of doing that. They have a much easier way and they have they bring a lot more confidence to IT practitioners and there's a huge movement of going to those companies for backup and restore, as an example. So that brings me to ask my favorite question. Uh, when you have a combination of legacy products in your organization, which are so essential to run the business, and then you obviously want to grow and transform the organization with new um, software. How do you balance between the two? Because while you're running the business, you're also replacing the re- legacy side of things. And, you know, if one of these new tools come in, uh, you would probably need to impact uh, some of your uh, run the business functionality. I am a firm believer modernization of technology pays hugely. It does mean there is a risk you have to take in modernizing your application stack, your technology stack, your infrastructure stack. But regardless of the company size, I I used to work for Gap before I worked here at Palo Alto Networks, and you would consider Gap with 130,000 employees. There's a huge opportunity to transform. They had anywhere from mainframes and migrated mainframes over to Linux systems. And huge advantage both in savings of cost as well as in unleashing the productivity of our ability to build more systems faster. So I think this goes back to how willing are you able to take risks and risks are more risky if you're not prepared. If you are taking a really good job of preparing and planning, they're not as risky. And I feel technology moves at such a rapid pace these days, regardless of what sector, whether you have run the business or grow the business, you need to be constantly look out for transforming your uh, underlying infrastructure. Yeah, you know, modernizing IT and digital transformation seems to be kind of the talk of the town, especially post-COVID. I read somewhere that you like to take risks, right? And sometimes it pays off, sometimes it doesn't. Why are so many companies averse to sort of making dramatic changes where the evidence is very obvious that when you modernize it, when you go through digital transformation, there is a handsome payoff on the other side. Like, like what's a downside risk that's uh, holding a lot of these corporations from adopting 21st century tools? Job security. (laughs) Yeah, well said. You know, uh, doing the same thing and making sure you don't lose anything is a better way to protect your job than making a big bet. Yeah, I had um, my ex-CEO at one of the companies told me once, you know, we were going through some massive modernization and he told me, Naveen, for a while, I thought this was not going to work out for you or for the product. <laughs> so it ultimately worked out and I was fortunate. I had a great team. We 
we had great business partners and we made that happen but with high risk comes high beta right so yeah yeah absolutely now in terms of the buying process and if i'm a product builder is a better strategy kind of go line a business get them excited about the tool whether it's crm or marketing tool go through cio top down and the industry has experimented with a lot of things box dropbox etc like what are you seeing from your side you know if you think about land and expand process the land process can happen in business units and is often quite effective yeah business unit standpoint uh, the expand portion where you are actually going to scale it is where you need to then bring in your internal champions and work with the CIO and that team. So you you want to get the CIO involved sooner or later, or the team in IT. So not to say that's the way I think often companies have performed really well as a result. Got it. And how commonplace is kind of the chargeback model where the IT teams or CIO is putting the bill but then line of businesses are still responsible for paying back. Like, are you seeing that more and more or it kind of depends on the tool? Yeah, I'm not a big fan of chargeback models. Okay. I don't think they are useful in terms of deciding what the right solution for the company is or right solution for that division is. You want to show the expense, but you don't need to necessarily charge it back. So there's a, you want to give them you want to give business the visibility of what they, what it's costing you, but not necessarily charge it back. Now, in some cases, when it's cogs, when you are trying to drive your opex and cogs business, you have to do it because yeah. you, you want to measure your cogs differently than your opex. But other than that, ultimately, it's company's money whether one business is selling, is spending it or other. Got it. So now we go to the meaty part of the discussion where kind of the tool selection kind of demystify how you select the tooling. And, you know, for productivity tools, like your binary choices, you go, you know, Google, Route or Microsoft Office 365. But for a lot of other B2B tools, there are like multitude of choices. How do you pick winners? What, to walk us through the process. Yeah, I think big uh, often... Founders can be the best salespeople for their companies and the way they articulate the business problem and what unique value proposition they are solving for. And if that resonates with the problem that we are facing as well, there is a quick match. So that's one one way of doing it. Obviously, we do POCs, then we have a progress process of testing the product as well. But often decisions are made quickly, uh, much more quickly than you would think. In second aspect, if there are Let's say you have a big transform initiative and you want to go through an RFP route. Some companies go through that route as well from a tool selection standpoint. If you can give us an instance of a negotiation that you went through and it really reduced the pricing based on X reasons. Yeah, so I think you're uh, one, you have to prepare. You have to have intelligence in terms of intelligence about the market and what the market is going to bear, what other what you would pay. You have to demonstrate leverage. And so you have to find ways to have leverage over the vendor or some ways of leverage, just like the vendor is having leverage over you in the pricing negotiations. So you use that to your advantage. And then uh, you are, but you, what you want to be is tough, but fair, right? You want to ultimately, you want the vendor to make money. You know, you, you know, if a vendor makes money, you, they're going to keep coming back and giving you better features over time. 
at the same time, you want to make sure that you have the best possible data. Was there ever a scenario where the usability of the tool was the primary decision factor and not the pricing? Uh, so I think uh, if you look at the stack ranking of how we select tools, it's primarily the product comes first. Is the product gives us the value that it needs? Is it useful to our customers? Like just to share an example of where I've made mistakes previously, right? We had uh, a CRM, we were picking an opportunity management solution in the previous company. And we had to select what was the next cloud-based opportunity management solution that we were going to take, right? And we had a choice between SQL on demand and, and Salesforce. And this is very early on. Salesforce was still uh, very young as a company. And... Uh, we had SIBO on-premise. And so naturally for IT professionals, it was an easier sell for us internally to say we should go with SIBO on-demand. And that's what I recommended as well. And it would have been a very bad decision had the company decided to do that. We ultimately picked Salesforce. I was really upset that they had picked a solution I had not recommended, but it was a much better solution in the long term we ended up implementing Salesforce and it was a lot more successful for the company as a result. So that example, thinking about your internal employees and what would success mean for them is probably number one criteria. Going back to your question, that should be your number one criteria first and foremost. And then comes in, you know, how does it tie into your IT platform and architecture because you, you want to simplify your architecture over time. And third is price. Got it. You know, you one of the things that you mentioned was also to, to grab your attention during the selection process. You know, founders will have to roll up their sleeves. And I read somewhere that one of the fastest selection you made ever was uh, selecting Zoom. And this is before Zoom became the thing. What did you see in the founders team, the product that uh, had you selected so quickly? You know, you meet certain leaders and you immediately get a sense. You, over time, you get a sense of people. Right. And um, Eric uh, comes across as incredibly sincere, incredibly customer focused. And he said, we'll do whatever it takes to make you happy. And that's a very different term to use. Right. Generally, uh, vendors won't use the term make you happy. Right. They will say we'll make you successful or we will we'll partner with you. They use a lot of other buzzy words. It's a very different term to use. It, was, it stuck with me. And then the product really was simple to use and worked in the small demonstration that we got. And it was like, and we were craving for something, as you can imagine, at that time, five years ago. Yeah. You know, the video tools really worked. They really sucked. And so yeah. something like that was a, was a no-brainer later on as a decision. Web conferencing is not new. WebEx, Microsoft Link, and Skype, and others have been around for a while. I'd imagine one of the reasons why they allowed Zoom to run away with the market is that they stopped innovating and simplifying. What's your take? Yeah, it's always hard, right? Like I, I'm constantly looking at ways, how can I simplify our platform? It's really hard, right? Because once you have legacy, you have to constantly find ways to yeah. simplify it. And it's not easy, right? It's easier to start from scratch. Yeah, you have to start saying no. And when somebody wrote you a multi-million dollar check, it's really difficult to say no. <laughs> the things that I also found from founders or co-founders where they are really, they're very really clear as to what their product does and does not do. 
and it build, brings that authenticity to the Interesting. product. And it's very clear, you get a lot more respect for a person if they say no to things, because it's easy to be seduced by enterprise companies and CIOs or large companies and say, we're going to give you a multi-million dollar check if you do X, Y, and Z. And I have a story like I had just joined this company at Palo Alto Networks and our founder was talking to a big vendor and I, I was a fly on the wall, just listen, not a big vendor, a big customer of ours. And the customer was speaking to the problem, what problem they're trying to solve. And Nier said, great, but this is not a problem we can solve for you. Here is a way you can solve it. And you would have thought like we would have found some way of putting our firewalls in the middle of that problem. And he didn't. And you gain an immense amount of respect for a, for a, for a founder or for a salesperson when they have the willingness to be honest and authentic with you as to what problem they're solving, what they can. Yeah. And it's pretty counter to how startups operate. Like they want to do whatever it takes to land a deal, say yes as many times as possible, but it's a pretty good advice. I mean, startups are all about focus. And when you focus on a certain thing and you're pitch uh, a certain way, you know, I think people will size up to that. But if you say you're going to be everything for everybody, I think, you know, it's just not possible. Like it's a, you know, small, mid-sized company, you can't do everything. All great teams have North Stars. Uh, This acts as a guiding principle for them as they go about doing their day-to-day job. What are your team's North Stars? How should an ideal IT org behave? Delight your business partners. Delight your customer. That's number one, first and foremost. Do things, focus on getting things done. So that's the second one. And that's follow to culture as well, but like, and then hold yourself to a high standard when it comes to solving problems and taking care of each other. Can you give us an example of how you've delighted your business partners? Yeah, so I think uh, several of those, uh, we look at the way we have transformed our help desk. We had genius bars and then we had COVID, COVID hit. And there's no genius bar anymore, right? Yeah. We have, how, do you, how do you support employees? So from welcome kits that drop in the first day to Sheldon, where we have our own bot, which does the NLP bot, which helps you deflect and get case to automation where we are 26% of the tickets now production as a result of automation in the last quarter to having an NPS score of 74 internally on IT for help desk is unheard of. And it goes with the kind of customer service mindset, even though we are more from that to if you walk to our office now, we have now these video where you can just walk up and copy your computer and we can take control and fix it while the person is remote. There are so many different small innovations to big innovations that we have brought into help desk over the last nine months as a result of just the problem we had facing ourselves is how do we continue to service our employees at a very high level while they were working from home, as an example. You mentioned Sheldon, you mentioned NLP. In your opinion, how is the data going to shape the next-gen IT experience in coming years? Incredible opportunity, Nilma. I'm so excited. I can't, like, I'm so lucky and fortunate. I feel so lucky and fortunate. I feel like I'm a kid again. How much 
technology can do in every sector, every industry. And it starts with using data and deriving intelligence out of data, deriving insights out of data, and uh, leveraging data in more meaningful manners. And, and, and just, I feel like every day we have so much of an opportunity to do that in every company, including mine. And we have only scratched the surface of that. Whether it is, you know, my my daughter is in high school and she's just right now learning markup chains. You know what markup chains are, right? And we were doing product propensity using markup chains as well. So it's like so interesting to see our kids who is in high school is learning that and you are implementing something like that in your product from determining product propensity on sales side. So it's so fascinating uh, where... They're going to be increasingly, everyone is, we will have citizen data scientists who will really drive the next level of innovation from a data standpoint. What is the Markov chains uh, for our listeners? It's basically this notion of how do you look for, let's say you have fire and your fires are spreading from one grid to another grid. It's yeah. a probability analysis of what is the probability of that fire spreading from one grid to another. And so the thing think about that from a product standpoint would be if I'm selling product X, what is the product propensity for that customer to buy product Y? Got it. You you talked about the data revolution and couldn't agree more with that. Are there any products that you're either experimenting with as a hobby or even at Palo Alto Networks that's uh, super exciting next gen? You can kind of see through, you know, what how it's going to transform IT and other sectors in a few years from now. Which are some of the products that uh, gets you excited? Yeah, so we just uh, working with a company just recently started some physical security called Ambient.ai. And they're using um, ML and AI for solving physical security of all things, right? Things (laughs) have been solved for a while. And they are doing, a, they are building a very unique approach, which doesn't rip out the legacy cameras or the legacy systems, but just sits on top of the legacy system and automates a lot of that process and removes the alert fatigue, just like we did for information security. Right? One of the claims that we have, which is rightly so, is we reduce the alert fatigue and we bring in visibility. So they do something like that. Uh, we work with MoveWorks uh, on the NLP side. That's what Sheldon is based on. And they are doing a really good job of mining the data to drive more and more insight and do human conversation at the level we generally, most bots, I hate talking to bots. And Sheldon is probably many steps further along than I would have expected it to be. That's just another example. There are more more there. I just feel like these two recently have been, have been very helpful in the company. Is there application of data on the sales side as well? On the sales optimization process, are we doing anything there from a Salesforce perspective? What are your thoughts on revenue, using data for revenue cycles? Yeah, tons of opportunities there, Nilima. So anywhere from using outside-in perspective to determine competitive landscape, using products to determine what the competitive landscape in a given company is, to doing better modeling of leads and opportunity scoring through AI, which will give you what leads and what opportunities to target first rather than second, uh, to providing SLR like we have these tools which we built, which enable you to do pre-sales activities where you are 
showing what is the true vulnerability in your environment without you even having to buy the product, right? And that uh, gives you a intelligence from a customer standpoint and gets you sticky. You know, at one time, we, we used to track this, 50% of our conversions on a POC with that SLR was was there, which is very, very high, right? So so finding those tools, there are companies like Clary that are really doing a great job of building new models around opportunity management and forecasting and simplifying that process. We just recently rolled out our own mobile tool called SalesTap, which uh, which we are which we are rolling out to all the sales reps around simplifying the way sales can do their business on a day-to-day basis and and so that they are spending less time on administrative tasks and more time on selling. And at the same time, we are just piloting customer 360, which gives them a lot more intelligence about the customer from assets to telemetry. If you can imagine, this is another example, right? Leveraging telemetry from the product to drive upsell and cross-sell and, and customer SAT adoption, stickiness, churn. So there's a big way to integrate product and sales in future. In fact, I feel like those two will become inseparable and will become more and more closer. Will, where they will become indistinguishable. Like we will be doing selling through the product. And many do, like, like B2C companies do, same in B2B. Great insights. I hope uh, our listeners uh, paid attention to the last seven minutes. I heard at least four new startup ideas. Um, one of the things that struck a chord with me was obviously churn and stickiness. I'd love to get your perspective on that. We spend a lot of time on land, but retaining and expanding is another critical area that the product builders have to think about. And as you describe sort of your perspective in this, kind of tell us like why Salesforce is so unique, the product where they're able to not only land, expand, retain, and over the last decade, so many competitors have come to disrupt them. But yeah. what makes them so sticky? Like there's, there's something about it. They don't have any of the intelligence that you talked about, right? And yet everybody wants it. What uh, makes Salesforce Salesforce? System of record. You know, there was a fight over system of records and largely being one in CRM space and ERP space and ITSM space and, you, and HRM space. And you see the four big SaaS companies which are targeting those four. One is not a SaaS company, I would say, but the other three. And their market cap has valued that as a result. And so the stickiness comes from system record. It's Mm -hmm. very hard to replace once you have millions of records in a given database and a given system. And then you have 25 different integrations to it. For us, we have 25 different integrations into Salesforce. Right, so you would have to rip all that out too. So that's where stickiness drives from. And then companies like Salesforce have done a great job of adding modules inorganically, adding not just features but new products that you can leverage on the same platform. I think uh, they, all the companies had the most sense of what a platform truly is very early on, because the force it used to be called Apex Force. Yeah. yeah. They had a really thoughtful design in terms of building a tool that not only was a SaaS application, but builders could use to build on top of. So the amount of the ease ease of customization on top of Salesforce has been one of the ways they have had such a sustaining business. Awesome. Uh, So great insights. Till now, Naveen, last question before we go into our rapid fire. 
how do you see the role of cio change in the next 5 years given the buzzword digital transformation that's already under way do you see engineering it sales converge and the lines blur i'm not a big fan of the term digital whatever <laughs> whatever <laughs> we are a digital company like what do you do when you're a digital <laughs> uh, but i would say this a transformation mm-hmm. of business where technology plays a massive role in transforming business in every industry is there right and cios who understand that cios who are revenue facing and really drive the business while maintaining and making sure that they are very good at keeping the lights on but really focused on how do you make money for the company and if they don't then they will be replaced by other three letter acronyms cto cdo or you name it would take their place uh, so ultimately it's not the title or the role it's the kind of people you have who have that mindset of growing the business and if they have that mindset they will succeed in whatever role they have with that we'll get into the rapid fire so we are going to ask you questions which can have single answers uh, you can also elaborate if you want of course first question b2b selection g suite or office 365 Please speak. ServiceNow or Zendesk? ServiceNow. Slack or Microsoft Teams? Slack. Which B2B trends are you most excited about? AI and ML, I think IoT. Who do you admire the most? Oh my dad. What advice would you have for your younger self? Uh take a lot more risks. Never settle. And this is from Ankur actually as a fellow sci-fi fan we have to ask you your favorite sci-fi movie Oh sci-fi movie mm-hmm. I can give you sci-fi books maybe I can go with that B- books will do Three body problem And final question who should we invite next to the pod Nikesh We will definitely try that and with that I want to thank you Naveen for giving us the amazing 40 minutes of your time We learned a ton and I'm sure our listeners will too And we hope to see you next year on the pod again. Thank you. Thanks, Naveen. Thank you.